and uh, where we have been stuck on circumcision now for a while. Let me repeat that number 17 on the book of Romans. So there are 16 lectures prior to this one. And again, we have been stuck on circumcision for a long time. And that's okay, by the way, because it's an extraordinary subject. It takes a lot of, lot of study to understand the totality that is circumcision. And soon, however, we're going to return to Romans chapter 2. When I say soon, what do I really mean? Yeah, a couple of months, that's right. But soon we're going to return in chapter 2 of Romans where we can again deal with the law and circumcision. As you know, that is chapter 2 of Romans. And so once we understand, once that is understood sufficiently, we can move forward to Romans 3. And the mistake everybody makes in Romans is they try to go through Romans without understanding law and circumcision. And of course, you are off into the ditch you go and you don't even know it. And uh, as you go through Romans 3, it ends with something. What do you suppose it ends with, you can guess here? Law and circumcision. That's right. Romans 3. So Romans 2 has law and circumcision. Romans 3 ends with law and circumcision. And uh, how many have read ahead to Romans 4? Because you're just exhausted with how slow I go. Okay, well, a couple of you have. And if you get to Romans 4, what is the centerpiece of Romans 4? For example, 9 through 16. What is the Romans 4, 9, 16 centerpiece? You can guess. That's right. Law and circumcision. So you don't get away from law and circumcision for three chapters at least. And it's going to remain with us for a while. Hence the great huge crowds that we draw here. Thank you for laughing. Finally, Romans 5 comes, and what, what's in Romans 5? Those of you who have studied and tried to catch up and get ahead and everything, what's in Romans 5? I've got law and circumcision, law and circumcision, law and circumcision, law and circumcision. Finally, I get to Romans 5, and what do I have? I have the typology and the federal headship of Adam and Christ. And what is the typology of Adam? It immediately puts me where? back into circumcision because circumcision is a major part of uh, the typology of Adam as is the federal headship and, that, and I've already begun that particular subject because I know it's coming in Romans chapter 5 it's prominent in Romans chapter 5 and I hope you are all realizing the extensive background information and knowledge required to get there. And that's the whole point of all of this, is to beat it all into you so that when you get to Romans 5 and you see a reference to Adam, you know immediately what he, why he put it there, why Paul, through the Holy Spirit, put it there. Being able to identify and to be fluent, just not only find them, but to be fluent in them. When you see the word circumcision, all of these incredible verses fly into your head. That's what I'm trying to do. And being able to, to be fluent and identify the meanings of the topics that, uh, that Paul, the Holy Spirit, put in Paul, that he addresses, and then build on them, uh, that's not simple. That's not simple. A shallow understanding of the book of Romans is going to lead you into a lot of trouble, doctrinally. Lots of trouble. So I want to make sure that you avoid that. And every time you see some doctrine that is clearly not taught in Scripture, you'll be able to avoid it. We have discussions here all the time, and I say all the time, I said last week, don't throw out all of Scripture because you have a verse you don't understand. You have, you have a huge pile of verses and you know what they're saying, but you find one that you don't understand and you throw the rest of them away. That is doctrinal error. What should you do instead? You should say to yourself, why is it that I can't understand this one verse? Because it, the way I'm interpreting it clearly disagrees with this huge ball of Scripture. So, I wish for you to have a command of the necessary elements of the Book of Romans. That's my plan here. Then you'll be able to see how they interface and connect together and fit, and so off you go. And what are they? Well, circumcision, right? Circumcision, the resurrection of Christ, the typology of Adam, the federal headship of Adam, the law, the Abrahamic covenant, sonship or heirship, if you will, Israel's rejection of Christ's messiahship. If I tell you Israel's rejection of Christ's messiahship, you tell me where in the Bible does that happen? Where does that happen? Matthew 12, that's right. Matthew 12. That is where 
Israel rejected the Messiahship of Christ. That is called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They are the only ones who have done it. Only the nation of Israel can do it. Only a nation can do it. And then after that, we have the hardening of the Pharaoh, the blindness of Israel, and the renewing of the mind. Those are the themes of the book of Romans right there. Salvation by grace, of course, is in there. That's I've already mentioned salvation by grace when I say what? Abrahamic covenant. Those are the themes of the book of Romans. And I want you to be fluent. If I say to you the uh, uh, hardening of the Pharaoh, you will go launch into some dissertation explaining what the hardening of the Pharaoh means. What it means for God to harden. How does God harden? And those are the main book of Romans issues. All of those. And to properly understand how they relate, it's required that we first become at least cognizant somehow of their primary meanings, and that's what I'm attempting to accomplish, and that's what I hope I've done, at least a little bit. If I only do this, by the way, most of the time the only thing I ever accomplish in these lectures is I get you used to hearing the terms. And I beat the terms into you. That's, by the way, how you handle everything. Every job that you have has its own terminology. And once you become familiar with the terms, then you are able to communicate. Uh, electrical work is that way. Framing is that way. Everything's that way. If I say cantilever to a framer, he knows he's asking me how many feet. If I say hip ridge to a framer, he's asking me no, a pitch of the ridge on the main, main home. If I say to you, I got 16 ohms of resistance, you will ask me about impedance. If I talk to a musician and I say we're in the key of D, they're going to ask me what the tempo and the beats per minute is. Because you understand the terminology. That's what I'm trying to do to you here is get you familiar. When I say sonship to you, Abrahamic covenant, circumcision, law, typology of Adam, federal headship, resurrection of Christ, hardening of the Pharaoh, all of those subjects, you instantly know what they mean. That's what I'm trying to do. And maybe that's all I accomplish and that's good. That's great. I'll be thrilled with that. So now, in pursuit of all of that, back we go to our dissection of Joshua 9 and Joshua 10 over here on the most holy rotating uh, dry erase board. Because last week we didn't get as far as I'd like to, and that was Mark's fault because he wanted us to go back and pick up Joshua 5, and that was a good thing to do, and we did that last week. We grabbed Joshua 5. They are the first generation uh, to be circumcised in the promised land. They were the obedient generation. They survived the wilderness. The first generation of Israel died. This is the second generation that is the obedient generation. So when I say the first one, that's what I meant. The one that got in there, not the first generation. That's confusing. I know I shouldn't even have gone back and done and previously, last week, all we did was able to get rid of fear greatly. I'll, I'll bump this around. Hopefully it'll rotate. It didn't block it up because they have to move it. If you try to move it without it locked up, then it spins while you're moving it and smacks you into the face. Last week, all we got through was fear greatly. What I'm having you do is pay attention... To what's in 9 and 10 of Joshua and what's in uh, Genesis 34 and start to notice the similar elements and try to figure them out. Joshua, first and foremost, is about what? It's a trick question. First and foremost, what is the book of Joshua about? It is about Jesus Christ. Where in the book of, where in chapter 9 is Jesus Christ? Most people immediately identify uh, Joshua, which is a form of Yeshua, right? Means salvation. They immediately identify Joshua, the commander of the Israeli nation, as a picture of Christ. But they don't know why or they don't know how. 
And that's what we're trying to do. And we're finding these little pieces and putting them together in order to find Christ. But you also need to find yourself in the story because you're in the story. So first find Christ. Actually, here's the order. First, get the basic meaning of what the Bible is trying to say. Then find Christ in it. Then find yourself. Then make the application. Then look for the prophecies. So, that's what we're doing there as well. So, uh, we began by looking at fear greatly last week. The Gibeonites' response to seek peace by deception, when they feared greatly, they feared greatly, and we wanted to pay attention to their response of, with their fear, and the king's response to, with his fear. So here we have the Gibeonites, they are in great fear, and they decide to seek peace. That's their response. See, now apply that to yourself. If you are fearing greatly the wrath of God, because that's what the Gibeonites were up against, would you seek peace? The Gibeonites did, and they sought peace by deception. That's a, a question ultimately we have to ask. Why did they take that route? Why did they take that route? Answer it for me. Why didn't they just go over and say, hey, we're the Gibeonites, you're supposed to kill us, we're going to throw ourselves on your mercy. Why didn't they do that? Instead, they decided the only way they're going to live, the only way they're fearing greatly for their lives, judgment of God is coming, and they decide the only way it will work is if we get a covenant that's, that's gotten by deception, and then God's going to honor it. See, they knew that would work. They didn't think throwing themselves on the mercy of Israel would work. Why didn't they think throwing themselves on the mercy of Israel would work? They tried that before. That didn't work so good. Got them all wiped out. So deception. If we can fool the, the Israelites, God's going to honor it. We trust God. We don't trust you. That, by the way, is the perfect way to run a church. And that's the perfect way to be in the congregation. Okay, now the king of Jerusalem, he also fears greatly. Both of them fear for their lives. They know that their death is coming, judgment is coming. One is to seek peace. They're going to figure out a way to get peace. They can't defeat, they can't win a physical fight. So the only thing they can do, they can't prevail in a war. So the only thing to do is to seek peace by deception. And that way they get to keep their stuff, by the way. Everybody always asks me, I always ask the question, why not just get out of there? Run. Retreat. Get out of the promised land. Go to the Deuteronomy 21 areas and sue for peace there. The Gibeonites, they figured out how to get peace and keep their stuff. But the king of Jerusalem, and by the way, he's the king of Jehovah Jireh Salam, right? God provides peace. He is the king of Jerusalem. Is he the king of Jerusalem? No, he's not. But he thinks he is, and the Bible calls him the king of Jerusalem. So what should you do when you see a guy that's the king of Jerusalem and he's not a good guy? In fact, he wants to kill people that are aligned with Christ. What's the first thing? When that king of Jerusalem was there, it should have just smacked you upside the head. You should have gone, wow, the king of Jerusalem is a bad guy. What do you do next? You go everywhere in the Bible where the king of Jerusalem is not a good person who seeks to kill Gibeonites. Who, what other king of Jerusalem sought to kill Gibeonites? Saul did, didn't he? How did it go for Saul? Uh, let's take his descendants. That's where we're headed next, right? The king of Jerusalem has a response to fearing greatly. And his response is to attack and kill the Gibeonites. And again, if you missed last Sunday, this is the classic two thieves scenario in the sense that I have equal access and I actually have kind of the same response in a way. I have equal access to Christ. The two thieves do. They're all nailed off. They don't have a walk. They can't take communion. They can't be baptized. They can't do any work with their hands. All they can do to be to save themselves is to do what? They have God right there on the cross in front of him, in front of him, both of them. They're the same distance away. I'll prove it to you some other day. But they're the same distance away. They both see everything. They both hear everything. They're both in fear for their what? Lives. They're going to die. One of them says, 
I'm going to ask him to save me. I'm going to go for peace. The other one does what? Hates him with his dying breath. Now, why does that happen? I have the same thing here. I have the king of Jerusalem and the Gibeonites. Equal access, equal information, pending death. One submits, throws himself on the mercy of Yeshua. The other chooses eternal death. Next, we should repeat the process uh, and find two others that we like on the board. That's what we do next. Now let's look around and see who possessed the, the most holy dry erase marker. It's me. If you possess the holy dry erase marker, then you get to pick. And we pretty well, as I said, got rid of fear greatly. So what should we do? There's a couple of things we could do. And I chose the journeying and the marching. And I'm looking on this part and see if I put it there. Yes, the journeying and the marching is here. Where is it? It's right here. After three days, they marched and journeyed to Gibeon. Okay? And the Gibeonites, they also came. It's right here. They marched and they journeyed from a far place. And we'll cover the scripture here in a minute. If you go over to Joshua 10, isn't that a marvelous thing? Once again, I have marching and journeying going on. I also have the king of Jerusalem. He attacks, right? He surrounds them. Uh, come quickly, save us. I don't have it. Don't forsake your soul right here. The five kings come and surround. So I have four places where journeying and marching is brought up. And the first, first thing I should do, what we'll do next, is we'll start to look at it. The Gibeonites' journey, they say they, they have a long journey. That, of course, was a lie. A very long journey, another lie. And they come to Gilgal. Now, that's very important. Do I have Gilgal on there anywhere? We covered that last week. What does Gilgal mean? I'll put it up here. What does it mean? I covered it last week. Come on, you can do this. Gilgal means what? It means rolling away the reproach of the Egyptians. Thank you for participating. Anybody remember that? Very important. Gilgal comes up all the time. It means the Egyptians... Uh, would uh, say things. It was an accusation. We'll get to that in a second. But the Gibeonites, they pretend to journey a long way. They didn't journey that far. Probably made the, the trip in what? A couple of days. Because you know the entire nation of Israel makes it in three days and three nights. Bang! That should slap you in the head when you see that in the Scripture. You see the king of Jerusalem? Slap you. You see three days, three nights? Here you go again, right? The Gibeonites' journey, long journey, Joshua 9.13, to Gilgal, where the Israelites are camped. Israel journeys the end of three days to Gibeon, Joshua 9.16-18. through 18. Israel marches all night from Gilgal to Joshua. I'm sorry, to Gibeon, Joshua 10, 6 through 10. And the kings, they also get together, and it's a southern campaign in the sense that they come from the south, and Gibeon is up on the high ground, and they march up, if you will, they journey up to Gibeon. So I got a whole bunch of people making journeys pretty much all to the same places eventually. And again, Gilgal is Israel's camp, Joshua 5. It is, again, the rolling away of the accusation of Egypt. What is the accusation of Egypt? They are camping at the place where God destroys the accusation of Egypt. What is the accusation of Egypt? What did the Egyptians say would happen? Okay, you can go. We're going to let you out. All our first barn are dead. All our cattle are dead. We don't have any crops anymore because of the locusts and the grasshoppers. Or the frogs are everywhere. Uh, we're going to let you go. That's, by the way, one of the great stories in Scripture. They go through the frogs. They're filled to the brim with frogs. The frogs are in their mouths. You can't take a, you can't breathe a frog on you. And Moses comes to him and he says, "Okay, I'll get rid of the frogs. When would you like me to get rid of the frogs?" He says to the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh has that great, great statement: "Get rid of the frogs tomorrow." Now, if this building were six foot, maybe eight foot high, filled with frogs, and we're in here, and somebody comes in and says, I can get rid of the frogs, we would say, how about now? 
not the Pharaoh. He says tomorrow. That's one of the great mysteries in that particular element. And we'll get there. We'll have to get there. How come we have to get there? Because that's part of the hardening of the Pharaoh's heart, right? So we'll touch with that. But anyway, we're in Gilgal, Israel's camp. The rolling away of the accusation of Egypt. See, the accusation that they made after they said, go ahead and go. We don't want to deal with you guys anymore. Obviously, God's taking you out. And he does take them out. And, of course, they chase them, and the entire Egyptian army is now killed. That was a bad plan. They lost in the Red Sea. But anyway, um, Egypt said that God would take Israel into the wilderness and leave them there and abandon them to die. That was the accusation. They would never get to the promised land. It was hopeless. You can go with God, but it's hopeless. You will. There is no hope for you. You will be abandoned to die. Does anybody say that today, by the way? Yes, you see, that is what we call evolutionary monism. You see? It is. You can believe in God but he will abandon you and you will cease to exist. There is no God anyway, they'll tell you. And if there is one, you still cease to exist. Your life has no value. That is an accusation against God. You will never reach the promised land, they will say, the world today will. Won't it? Won't they? There is no promised land and you won't get it. You can go down that path. You can pretend. You can go. But God will abandon you to die, cease to exist in the wilderness. That is the accusation of Egypt, and God puts it to bed here at Gilgal. That's why they know it. That's why they call it Gilgal, is because this is the place that God proves that you have everlasting life. That's essentially what's going on there. Gilgal is the place then of circumcision of the second generation of Israel, and the Gibeonites come to this camp. They come to the place where the accusation of Egypt is destroyed. They come to the place where the circumcision of the second generation of Israel occurs, and there they are. Now, we're going to reread those applicable passages so that we're all on the same page again. So open your textbooks. Here we go. Joshua 9, 6. We'll start there. Okay. And they went to Joshua. This is the Gibeonites. To the camp of Gilgal. So what did they do? They journeyed to Gilgal. The place where God proves that there is an eternal life for those who believe in him. And where he rolls away the accusation of Egypt that they would be abandoned to die in the wilderness with no hope. So they go to this place, Gilgal, and they said to him, to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country, now therefore make a covenant with us. That is them journeying, right? And that's what we're doing today is comparing the journeying. Now jump down to 16. And it happened, oh, I'm sorry, 12. This bread of ours we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, it is dry and moldy, and these wine skins which we filled were new, and see they are torn, and these are our garments, and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. So the Gibeonites make a journey. They pretend it's very long, but it, just pay attention to the journey. Now here's Joshua 9.16. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, the Israelites had made a covenant with the Gibeonites, that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. Then the children of Israel journeyed. So again, journey. We have these journeys occurring now. Whenever you start to see all these pieces and they're kind of the same, make a list. Try to figure it out. So now I had the Gibeonites journey and now I have Israel journeying. And they came to their cities on the third day. I say to read all the way to 19. So let's go. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shapira, Beeroth, Kirjath, Jerem, but the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel and all the congregation complained against the rulers. Then all the rulers said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. So there's your two journeys. One journeys to Gilgal. The other, uh, they come from Gibeon to go to Gilgal. The other one comes from Gilgal to go to Gibeon. Now, Joshua 10. 6 through 10. 
And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us. What should you do when you hear the word save us? What should you do? When you hear save us. Do I have it? Yes, I do. Right here. Save us. Do not forsake me. Save us. Do not forsake me. Save me. What's that? That's the call of every human being at some point. Come up to us quickly, save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal. So there you have Joshua. When you see Joshua, know that he's what? Almost always in Scripture. Who is he? Who is he typifying? Almost always typifying Christ. Not every time, but most of the time, he's one of the great types of Christ. Christ ascends from the place that God proves that there is everlasting life for those who believe in him. That's what's going on there. He and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Delivered is interesting because we end up with the Gibeons being delivered also into the hand of Joshua, right? The Gibeonites are delivered into the hand of Joshua, verse 26. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel. So they were in both cases. I have the five kings being delivered into Joshua's hand. And the Gibeonites placed themselves and were delivered out of the hand of the children of Israel. So we look at delivered on the... Here it is. So we're also comparing delivered now. i got a bunch of deliverance. When I was a young kid, everybody thought it was a good idea to eat deliver, right? I never ate it. I was given it, and I would look at it. And then the parent would turn her back, generally, and that's when the dachshund ate deliver. So nobody, and, and, and everything that used to be, we had to eat, you know, castor oil. Yeah, anybody, how old is he, you're asking? Remember castor oil, whatever you were sick, you never said you were sick because you got castor oil. I learned that castor oil did the same thing every single time. What did it do? That's right, it made you vomit. That's right. Perfect. Thanks. Vomiting was good. <laughs> so watch out for that. Okay, where was I? I've got to get all the way to verse 10. Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua therefore camped upon them, suddenly having marched all night from Gilgal. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon, struck them down as far as Azekah and Machadah. Okay? There's your applicable verses. So first we should note the phrase, the end of three days, after three days, a journey three days and three nights, that's a crucifixion reference, isn't it? A crucifixion week reference. That's the sign of Jonah right there. After three days, the nation of Israel came, after a sign of Jonah, the nation of Israel came to Gibeon, believing that these cities would be destroyed and everyone would be slaughtered in them because they already went through Jericho and Ai, and that's what happened there. And so you can think about it, imagine if you can, the scene i got this huge, uh, a powerful army. It's marching for three days and three nights. It's marching for a sign of Jonah. And I think, well, they got to be talking. They're an army, and they're going to go fight somebody. How's it gone so far for them? Pretty simple. Blow a couple of trumpets. That, by the way, is a profound truth. Blow a trumpet, good things happen. You will never hear that. You, you, some of you might know that I pretend to play the trumpet. And I haven't been able to play because I threw my face into a ladder from about 10 feet off the ground. I have this little bump now in there. And so I can't hit the notes that I could hit prior because I had the magic mouthpiece and I was really happy. Now the magic mouthpiece doesn't work anymore because it's what's called a shallow cup and I have this little wart protrusion. And I've been thinking about going up in there doing personal surgery. It's always a really good idea. I see Robin is coming with something to eat. 
we should all stand up and cheer when she walks in. That would be cool. That would really be cool. I wonder what she's got. What has she got? Here she comes with something good to eat for the buffet. I'm very happy. Here's her opportunity. Somebody brought food. What did you bring? Is it bread pudding? Is that what I heard? Oh, sausage bag. Okay. Well, we're still very excited. I told them all to jump up and cheer, and they wouldn't do it. Next time. Next time. Don't leave unless you get more food. Okay. You can go. But I want you to imagine the scene. They have just successfully destroyed two powerful um, two powerful cities, and it took literally nothing. Blow a trumpet, march around a little bit, uh, ambush them. No one, the Israelite army does not die. No one kills them. They, all of them return. None of them die in these fights. So how cocky are they right now? They're feeling pretty good, and you can imagine what they're talking. They're thinking, how's this, by the way, how'd they select the target? Why did they go here? What's the advance reconnaissance like, the patrols, the scouting? And what they have to think, though, is how will God kill them all this time? Will he do it the same way as he did in Jericho? We're going to blow trumpets and kill them? Which is a really cool idea. By the way, when God wants your attention, does he use an electric guitar? No, he does not. Does he use a drum? No. Does he use a bass guitar? No. He uses a trumpet. No flutes for God. When he wants your attention, it is a trumpet. And trust me, one of these days I'll prove to you how powerful that device is. But anyway, the point is, and some of you will die. That'll be the way. Okay, maybe not. You will want to die when I play the trumpet. I want a trumpet section is what I want. I want 15 of us. We'll take over the world. Never mind. They had to say, would he use trumpets again? Would he ambush again? Would Jericho and AI be repeated? Or would something distinct happen? But they knew one thing for sure, and none of them were going to die. They were going to be very successful. And certainly they must have believed that Gibeon would be delivered to them, the riches that were there, because they had the advanced scouting. That was a rich, powerful city. And they got to plunder these places. They got all the stuff. This isn't, by the way, going into Spinard. No offense. This is going to some powerful, wonderful, very rich cities and getting all their stuff. And you know they're excited about that. And they came out of Egypt the first generation with all the Egyptian stuff too. I always wondered where that went. So this is a terrific thing. This is like going to Sam's Club or Costco. We just run through and get everything we want, right? And so they've got to be talking about that. They've got to be excited about it. And they knew that the Gibeonites would be delivered to them. The riches would be there. Same thing, different day for them. As I said, none of Israel dies when God is with them. By the way, is that true in the New Testament? Where's the New Testament compliment for the fact that when you're with God, fighting on the side of God, when you're with God at all, you don't die? Yes, Christ, he did the same thing in the New Testament. Look at Mary and Martha. If you were here, Lazarus wouldn't die. Nobody dies around you. That's a promise of God. Nobody dies around God. Instead, the leaders of Gibeon, so they all get there, they're all excited, we're going to get all the stuff, and the leaders of Gibeon come out with their peace agreement. (laughs) Hi, remember us? Don't have the moldy, ugly clothes this time. We have an oath. We have a covenant. We have kill us and God will kill you card. Think that through. That's what we've got. That's that's what's going on here. Mutual assured destruction. Kill us and God will kill you. A principle, by the way, the Gibeonites never forget. They know that you kill me, God kills you. That's what happens. I don't have to worry about justice. I don't have to do nothing but wait. I have kill me and God kills you card. It's right here in my wallet. 
Israel now cannot attack and Gibeon lives and the march is wasted three days three nights a sign of Jonah all that they got to go up was big all this anticipation God's going to get them and no they have to turn around and go back to Gilgal and because they will not they're not foolish enough this is a very smart generation they complain about it you can read the complaints but the leadership said no the covenant cannot be broken and it is not broken so there, now I have the, the Gibeonites' journey to Gilgal, the Israelites' journey to Gibeon from Gilgal, and now I have the five kings' journey. They come and they camp at Gibeon, and they want to attack the Gibeonites. And by the way, did they have a pact with the Gibeonites? They did. And the Gibeonites broke it to make a pact with the Israelites, right? Because the pact with the Gibeonites from the five kings that we're all going to stick together and fight Israel. But Gibeon went their own way. They're the thief that makes the right move, takes the flyer. Save me. Remember me. Have mercy on me. All good things you can do before you die. So to recap, so far, three journeys. Gibeonites to Gilgal from Gibeon. Israelites from Gilgal to Gibeon back to Gilgal. Five kings from the south to Gibeon. And finally the fourth journey, Israel again from Gilgal to Gibeon. This time the three-day, three-night march is made in one night. You can imagine all of this, I hope. See, a lot of people want to know, why did Israel win Gibeon is surrounded by the five kings. Why didn't Israel just say, hey, that's the Canaanites, let them kill each other. Hey, gets us off the hook. We'll get the stuff anyway. Why did Joshua go up there and fight on their behalf? A lot of theologians will say, well, it was a good tactical thing to do. No, it had nothing to do with the tactics. That's silly. Why did he do it? Why did he fight on their behalf? They sent a messenger to him, save us, do not forsake us. And he came as fast as he could. Why? Because he made an oath. God makes an oath. It depends on God, not upon you. But I want you to notice the pattern. Israel's pattern. Actually, Joshua's pattern. He comes to Gibeon twice, doesn't he? Twice. The first time he comes, what is he going to do? What's he going to do? You know, slaughter them, isn't he? Why is he slaughtering them? He's going to kill every one of them. Why? Because God told him to. Why did God tell him to? Because they deserve judgment. So the first time Joshua comes is in judgment. The first time he comes is in judgment. But he doesn't judge, does he? I have two comings of Yeshua. A first coming to Gibeon and a second coming to Gibeon. The first coming results in mercy. Joshua does not attack. He has made an oath, a covenant, that he will not break. What's that doctrine? What is that doctrine? Joshua has come to Gibeon. He makes an oath, a covenant, that he will not break. Irrespective of the action, the deception, the lying of the Gibeonites, Joshua, Yeshua, will keep his covenant. And the Gibeonites will be given life and given deliverance. The Gibeonites believed when they first saw this massive army coming into Canaan. They believed they were doomed. They knew all of Canaan deserved death. They threw themselves onto the mercy of Joshua, on the mercy of Yeshua. Joshua 9.25, this incredible verse. Here's what they say. And now here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. When Joshua came, they had their get out of kill me, God kills you sign. But they still knew that that could be broken. Israel could kill them. What would happen if Israel killed them? God would be very, very unhappy. And when God is unhappy, everybody is unhappy. It's a lot like mom. But they said, do to us what is good and right to do. Wow, that's incredible. Standing before, that's an incredible statement. The wisdom that the Gibeonites have. Standing before Yeshua, deserving death, willing to accept slavery, knowing that Yeshua will do what is good and right. Because what? Jesus Christ is good and he is righteous. He is just. 
They threw themselves onto the hands, into the mercy of the one who is good and just. What's the obvious question? How did they figure that out? They heard, by the way. Heard. Right here. They knew they were doomed. They knew they deserved judgment. But they heard something. What did they hear? They heard that if you had a covenant with God, you were saved. They were going to get one. They didn't care how they got to do it. They were going to get one. And then when the Israelites came before them, they said, We got the card. We got the covenant. Do what is good and right. We believe you will do what is good and right. That's amazing. But the first time Joshua comes to the Gibeonites, they are given mercy. The second time he comes, they are what? They are surrounded. And they cry out, do not forsake your servants, save us. And God comes from Gilgal and he kills the enemies of his servants with rocks and with sword. And all of Israel returns, none are lost. Again, hidden within an actual, literal, historical event, this second part of the Gibeonite saga is prophecy and doctrine and doctrinal truth just everywhere. Again, let's talk about it. How many times does he come to Gibeon? He has two comings to Gibeon, two advents. The first coming, he comes in mercy. The second coming, he comes and he kills the enemies. He comes as a response to a call. Please save us. Do not forsake your servants. So who are the Gibeonites? Two positions. By the way, when Joseph first sees the nation of Israel, he has been abandoned by his brothers, the nation of Israel. He is thought to be dead, but he ascends out of a pit and he goes to Egypt where he saves the entire world from hunger, right? And the first time the nation of Israel comes to him, he speaks to them in a foreign language. They don't, he has an interpreter. He speaks to them in a way they don't understand him. We call that parables. The second time they come, he reveals himself. The same thing is happening here. You have two comings to Gibeon. The first time, mercy. The second time, he comes to kill the enemies. So again, this really did happen. There really was a Gibeon. There still are Gibeonites. You can still find them. What's their last name? Look them up in the phone book. What's their last name? Gibeon. Makes sense, huh? You can find Levites. What's their last name? Levite. Levin. Right? Levi. You can find the descendants of Aaron. Who are they? Cohen. Cohen. That's how you can figure out who will be the chief priest. You have to be an Aaronic line to be a chief priest. So, they still have the same name. A literal, actual, historical people, a literal, actual, historical event, and God hid tremendous truths in here. He hid prophecy and doctrine, which is why the Old Testament is so necessary to understand. It's so necessary. Jesus Christ is on every page. It testifies of him. We're supposed to search him out. He tells us to search him out in the Old Testament. John 5.39 If you're not looking for Christ in the Old Testament, what's going to happen to you in the New Testament? You're not going to understand your New Testament. You're certainly not going to understand the book of Romans. You have nothing to compare it to. If you can't find it in the Old Testament, you can't find it. You've got it wrong in the New Testament. If you have some doctrine that you can't find in the Old Testament, you and Hebam Bigam trouble. It's got to be there. And, and, and if you find Christ on every page, you're going to ensure that you're doctrinally sound and you're not going to quake and fall down every time something simple happens to you. Many have noticed the surrounded by enemies and do not forsake your servants and the save us portion of this. And, and they also notice the now therefore you are cursed because Joshua tells the Gibeonites they're cursed. I'm, they didn't seem so cursed to me. One, they got good paying government jobs and two, they got to live, right? Nice pension. How's that cursed? Everybody else was massacred, not the Gibeonites. What, Joshua said you're cursed. Why would he call them cursed? Because of what? That's a clue for you. You should have said, wow, that doesn't make sense. I have right here, cursed? Really? Is this a reference to someone that is cursed? Who is cursed? 
Christ cursed one thing in the entire New Testament. What is it? Fig tree. Fig tree is a symbol for nation of Israel. Whenever Joshua says cursed, you immediately have to say to yourself, am I dealing with the nation of Israel somehow here? Does the nation of Israel, as they are sinking, as they are surrounded, say to their Messiah whom they pierced and now mourn for, save us, do not forsake us. Do they say that? Absolutely they do. Do you remember Simeon Peter? I keep saying I've got to do this for everybody now because they have a lot of new people listening and a lot of new people coming. Um, we've managed to get rid of the older people. It's been every Sunday. That's my motto. Drive away four people every Sunday. And it's been working well. But Simeon is one, Simeon Peter, Simon Peter is one of the Simeons. You have to know your Simeons, right? You have to know Simeon, the brother of, with Levi, Simeon, it means hearing, is imprisoned by Joseph. You have to know that Simeon. You have to know the Simeon, the prophet that does not die until he can see the Messiah. He has the Messiah in his hand. You have to know Simeon, the Cyrenian, that is holding on to the cross member. You have to know Simeon, Peter. You put all of those guys together, you have the Simeon prophecy, and you can understand what happened there. You don't think something silly like Christ couldn't hold his own piece of wood. Can God lift a piece of wood? Do you think it makes sense that he that they took the wood off of him and gave it to a guy named Simeon? Do you think that's a coincidence? It's not a coincidence. You always make a mistake if you don't know your Simeons. Anyway, Simeon Peter, as he's sinking into the water after he's denied Christ, I'm sorry, before he's denied Christ, but he eventually denies Christ three times, he's sinking into the water. He's, he says, I'll walk on the water. I'll walk, you'll walk. I get out onto the water and he begins to sink. Because why? He has a doctrinal problem. Christ says so. You have a doctrinal problem. And he begins to sink. And what's he yell? Save me. So now you know that he is where? What is he now? What's he? It's an actual historical event. It really did happen. What's hidden underneath it? A reference to the nation of Israel. Peter, as you know, Simeon Peter cannot be placed into service. John 21, he cannot be restored until he says to Christ, to his face, you are omniscient God. You know all things. Then he can be said, follow me. Now he can be put into service. That is the problem of the nation of Israel. Israel does not believe Christ is the Messiah. They do not believe that he is omniscient God. Someday they will cry out to him, save me, we are seeking do not forsake your servants. Save us. And Christ will come and save them. When will that be? Then they'll be put into service, by the way. What do we call that service? they got a thousand years or something. The millennium, that's right. Israel is cursed, the fig tree. If I say fig tree to you, what do you say back to me? Yes, Adam typology. Anyone say that? Start doing it. Why do you say Adam typology when I say victory? Because Adam covered himself with what? Fig leaves. Could have picked anything. He made himself garments out of fig leaves. Why would he do that? And why is it that Christ curses a fig tree? Why is the nation of Israel called a fig tree? Israel cries out, saves us. Christ will come quickly. He will march all night. He will come quickly and he will slay their enemies. Zechariah 14. Cursing a fig tree, by the way, is cursing works-based salvation. God curses works-based salvation. Learn that. Israel will know who he is when he comes. Truly is. They will know that he is the Lord God Almighty. He is creator God they will know, and they will be restored to service. And the pattern is right here in Joshua 9 and 10. Right here. Christ comes, and those deserving death receive mercy, and Christ leaves. What do we call that? The first coming of Christ. By the way, did any Jews who deserve death receive mercy? Well, yeah, the entire church was started by Jews. The first things I tell Catholics, and I hope some of you are Catholics here. I like Catholics. First 13 popes were Catholic. I'm sorry. That makes sense. First 13 Catholic popes were Jews. 
Jews started the Catholic Church. That's the Church of Rome. What book are we in? We're in the Book of Romans. We're studying Jews who started a church in the city of Rome. How'd it come out? A little shaky. That's okay. Christ returns quickly to save his covenant people who are surrounded by a king of Jerusalem. A guy who calls himself the king of Jerusalem. And what does Christ do when he comes and finds the city, uh, finds his covenant people surrounded by a guy who calls himself the king of Jerusalem? It's the same story. Joshua comes, he finds, uh, the, he finds the Gibeonites surrounded by a king of Jerusalem. What's Joshua do to the king of Jerusalem? He kills him. He hangs him, right? Makes an example out of him. It's exactly Revelation 19, 19 through 21. Then comes the millennium, Ezekiel 40 through 48, and Revelation 24 through 6. The millennial rule, the third stage of the redemptive work of Christ, the king stage. Christ first comes as a prophet. That's his first advent. Then he is the high priest in mediating the mediatorial uh, office that he has now. And then he finally comes as king. So three phases, three stages, if you will, of the redemptive work of Christ. Prophet, which is gone. Priest, which is where we currently are. When that's done, here comes king. But lastly, note, the five kings led by the one who is calling himself the king of Jerusalem. By the way, does a man, God is clearly the king of Jerusalem. Christ is the king of Jerusalem. Why would you call yourself the king of Jerusalem when you know that's a title that is God? Who would do that? Who would take himself, put himself on the throne of Jerusalem and call himself the king of Jerusalem when he knows it's really God? And what are you saying when you call yourself the king of Jerusalem? You're proclaiming yourself to be God. Who would do that? Of course he would. It's right there in Joshua 9 and 10. That's an antichrist prophecy. The king of Jerusalem tried to kill those who believed in God. Okay. 15, 14, 13 seconds, 12 seconds. 11. Two kinds of deliverance. There's deliverance to service and there's deliverance to eternal death. Joshua comes to the Gibeonites and he delivers them to service. He comes to the kings and he delivers them to eternal death. Dems the only two choices. There are no other options. There's no option C. You either go Gibeonite and say, do what is good and right with us, or you go five kings and you are hanged. That's the only two options there are. There's the deal. You make your choice. You go with the Gibeonite choice and you go into slavery to God. Is that a good thing, slavery to God? Absolutely it is. You have no idea what it means. If you think it's bad, you have reverse thinking. It is a wonderful thing and the Gibeonites do it. You either go Gibeonite and you say to God, do what is good and right with us because you know God is good and you know He is just and He will do what is just and what is right. Or you go with the five kings and you're hanged. And as I said, there's your deal. Make your choice. I know that's a hard sermon. And I'm sorry about that. Not really. That's a fake sorry. Bears giants. Let's rise and beat this man.